Welcome to our third podcast in our series on Model-Based Systems Engineering, or MBSE. We are again joining our moderator, Nick Finberg of Siemens Global Marketing, interviewing Tim Kinman, Vice President of Trending Solutions and Global Program Lead for Systems Digitalization at Siemens Digital Industry Software. We are also privileged to speak to Payush Kakare, Global Director for Automotive Industry Solutions at Siemens. Michael Below, Control Engineer at Siemens, and Brad McCaskey, Portfolio Executive at Siemens. We are continuing our discussion on the impact of MBSE in the aerospace and automotive industries, including today's discussion on connected engineering. Thank you all for joining Tim and myself for today's discussion. So far, we've talked about a high-level look of what MBSE is and the growing importance it has for complex products. We've talked with a few experts about where to start the development process by defining system requirements or the product definition. Joining us today are Piyush Kakar, Brad McCaskey, and Michael Balo. Could each of you tell me a little bit about yourself before we dive into today's topic of connected engineering? This is Piyush Kakare. I am a uh, global director for automotive uh, industry solutions here at Siemens. Mainly look after all the different solutions that we can build for automotive industry given the wide portfolio of Siemens that we have here. My background is in electrical and software engineering, although by trade, I'm a mechanical engineer, so I'm kind of jack of all, king of nothing kind of thing. Uh, mechanical, electronics, uh, electrical, and software, so I've been to all of these different domains. So that's about me. My name is Michael Palo. I work at Siemens, and I've practicing control engineer for about 20 years. I've developed control systems that are in material handling systems and manufacturing, uh, and also in automotive and some mobility applications. Presently, I'm responsible for defining the controls engineering strategy in our company, DISW. Hi, I'm uh, Brad McCaskey. Um, I'm a portfolio executive here at Siemens. I focus on model-based systems engineering all the way through the process for requirements, all the way through engineering, into after sales, into manufacturing, all the way, and then a round trip back. I've been in design automation for about 40 years, and... I started my journey in model-based engineering in about 2005 as we started on body controllers when they started to get more complex. So I've, I've been along the journey in model-based systems engineering for quite a while. Well, awesome. In our last episode on product definition, we left the audience with the note that the importance of the definition is to represent the what and the why of the design to enable modular decomposition into relevant workflows. What can these modules look like coming into an engineering department? Maybe to get the ball rolling here is, you know, we did, as you said, start off with product definition, but we also ended with architecture, that we had a set of interconnected information that was representing the overall system architecture containing all the requirements and the functions and the overall behavior of the what and the why that we're trying to achieve. The reason we have this cross-domain audience and speakers on the phone today is to talk about the interrelationship, how we take that system architecture and not only just drive through the initial technical feasibility, but start coordinating and concurrently collaborating in an overall feature-centric development process. And maybe to get us rolling, we should talk a little bit about what is a feature and what does it mean to be feature-centric? So, yeah, I mean, this feature-centric method or, or mentality started probably 2007-ish overall in the automotive industry to recognize that the way the the vehicles are being sold and the way the customers pay for the vehicles, a lot of monetization is coming in from what they pay for. And, and more and more customers start to recognize that, oh, I want this feature, I want this lane assist, or I want power mirrors and things like that. And on the other side, 
OEMs have been trying to figure out, you know, how do we reduce engineering cost and, and more so for that, how do you track engineering cost while the complexity of all the stuff that goes into the vehicles have been sort of exponentially increasing. So up came this concept of feature engineering where everything and anything you do should basically align to a feature that either the customer touches or uses or it is something of a sort of an engineering importance, if you will, something like a torque management or battery management, things like that, where it is something very relevant, very at a sort of a vehicle or even a platform level, or mostly what the customer touches. So that's what feature became. So anything and everything you do, all the requirements or models or parameters or interfaces, anything and everything you do should be now counted in the container, let's say, what we called as the feature, so that any you know these features becoming more and more complex. If you think about, let's say, uh, the start-stop button, for example, that you you touch your finger on that button and the car starts, that one feature typically will touch about twenty different ECUs or twenty different computers on on your vehicle, and they start to you know talk to each other, and that is how the car starts or stops. So if you think about that. How do you make sure that that feature is engineered the right way, the complexity that goes onto all of those 20 things? And by the way, those 20 things are not just doing that start-stop. They're doing 15 other features uh, as well. So if you look at the complexity, then that goes increasing. And that's where this whole sort of feature engineering or feature-centric, feature let's call it architecture-driven process start to, to evolve. Awesome. So a customer might be looking for push-button start. What sort of information comes along with that? And how do teams start to work around that goal of creating a push-button start for a vehicle if there's so many extra ECUs that it touches almost instantaneously? Exactly. So that, that's where I think Tim was going as to how do you capture this in the first place as to what the features should be doing and start to understand as to what functions are needed to do that feature and then start to allocate those functions to what Logically speaking, what that fun- who's going to do that function, whether it's going to be an actuator or a sensor of some kind or some processing unit of some kind, and then you start to allocate the physical parts to that, and that is how you start to see as to how distributed that particular feature is going to be. In sort of doing this, you start to see as to who's going to do what in terms of domains as well. So to do one feature... Obviously, there's going to be some pieces that are going to be done by electrical. There's going to be a lot of software that's involved to do that feature. There's going to be mechanical aspects to do, for example, braking or steering uh, in terms of sort of autonomous systems. So these features could be sort of spread across the domains. And this way of breaking it down into functions and you know who's going to do those functions, uh, what parts do we need for those logical components, if you will, and be able to then cascade them down to the respective domains. That this is what electrical guys, this is what you, that you are slated to do for this feature and so forth. Uh, so that's how you start to get the full picture from top down. And on from, from the domain side of it, everybody gets to see the same system intent, if you will, the feature intent. That what is the feature is really trying to do? So everybody worked towards the same common goal, what that feature is about. Let's explore that a little bit more because, you know, as I was branching off of architecture, the system level, we're now getting into what you introduced correctly is now down to EE and software architecture. And that's an important distinction when you start thinking about the different approaches you may want to take to solve these functional problems. 
So, Brad, you're on. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how people would approach this this decomposition that we're referring to in an electrical software architecture. To build upon what Piyush said, we, we take basically the function or system models that are created based upon the feature requirements. We decompose those down into what is needed for the electrical, electronics, and software space. We then allocate those system models into the actual place it's going to go into the vehicle, into an actual ECU, maybe a, a zone module or some type of controller, and assess the impact on the performance, on the networks, uh, the software performance, and maybe in the impact on the electrical and the wiring. The reason for that is to really understand how you want to architect the platform itself, the vehicle platform. Then you release those requirements into each of the design domains for their requirements that they have to, to manage to the, into the physical implementation. This is very important because as you get deeper into the physical domains, one engineer could make a decision on something that can impact the other domain, especially in this feature-centric type approach. So traceability comes back is very important to that. So you can go back and say, number one, did you meet the overall requirement, but also did you violate any cross-domain type of engineering that's going on as you get further into the integration into the vehicle. Yeah, and so it seems architecture is really important here as well because we move from the what and the why that was breaking down the functional elements that we're trying to to pursue in the product definition. But now you're thinking about, okay, how do I achieve that? How many sensors or what fidelity of the sensor? What latency in the network? How many ECUs are distributed? Because as Payush was pointing out, we could have hundreds of, of individual elements to achieve that push button start. So when you're talking about EE architecture, you're really thinking through the multiple approaches that could be possible, whether it's mini ECUs, uh, zone ECUs, what's the latency of the signal, what's the computation? You, you have to consider all those elements. Is that right? That's correct. You hit it right on the head, and especially we move into electric vehicles, right? You start to look at more things like power management. And when you place those certain uh, functions into certain zones or into certain ECUs, it's going to require a certain amount of power. And as we try to do software over-the-air update, you need to make sure in the future you have that power management capability there for that particular zone. So as the vehicle starts to evolve, these are all the things you need to think about way up early on in the architecture phase. When you think about the EE architecture, you also have to think about what's parallel to it, which is the software architecture. So the EE architecture and the software architecture are two parallel architectures that have to coexist. The software architecture has to be compatible with the electrical and the electronic architecture has to be compatible with the software. And so this problem of, you know, Earlier, we discussed, okay, you have, you have these functionalities, you decide, are they going to be electrical? Are they going to be software? And you make some kind of assessment, but then you have to start binding the software to the electronics. And that becomes a really tricky problem where, where you're saying is when we place a piece of software onto the electrical architecture somewhere on one node or another, we have to worry about things like latency. We also have to worry about, is that computational unit going to be able to perform the action in a timely way? We also have to think about things like if I put two functions which are tightly connected together, even though I can deal with the latency of the network, I have to just deal with the safety. What if there's a, a network issue and a signal is delayed, which can happen? So there's these complicated sort of dynamics between two architectures that are very t- coupled together. And I think that's a very interesting thing that if people sometimes don't uh, 
don't think about when they, when they look at these systems. Yeah, and I think, Michael, you opened up another topic and, and is delving into this complexity you're, you're defining, and that's the interfaces between these things. It's not as simple as the a geometric mounting point or something that's a, a kinematic. It's now dealing with electrical and electronic signals passing across the network. So the interface definitions become really, really important and, and basically represent the contract that will enable this push button start to enable the results. So let's talk a little bit about interfaces that get defined through this architectural approach. Maybe somebody could jump in here. When you look at a system, you can start the problem out very simply. You could say, okay, maybe my most basic type of interfaces, I just have a list of the parts, you know, a list of things. But then you get a little bit more advanced and you say, well, I, I don't need just a list of bill of functions. What I need to know is what are my input and output signals that are shared between these different functions? And then you might get a little bit more advanced and say, well, there's also parameters that I can use to program all of these different functions so I can kind of coordinate the way they're configured. And then you can go a level above that and you can say, well, that's not enough because these devices have behavioral constraints that needs to be respected. So you can have a level of contract and then dynamic kind of interface above that. So there's a really fascinating problem of how far you can take this idea of a contract on an interface and I don't think we're really, you know, there's a lot of research in this, but it, I think, you know, there's a lot of learning ahead because when we get that down really well, we'll be able to break up these problems and analyze how, you know, assemble systems. The end goal of features is to be able to break down a problem and reassemble it. So I think there's a lot of future potential there. Just to add to that, one thing that obviously the industry is driving or kind of forcing all the engineers to do is sort of the timing crunch of it, right? So they want to do these features fast and furious, I guess. No pun intended there. But it's something that you want to make, you know, used to be doing years. They want to do it in months or even weeks. So how do you do these kinds of new features or modifications to features and build these, you know, features and functions and interactions or interfaces between these functions and validate that, you know, if you connect it this way, if you connect these five functions this way, it will actually work. How do you do that upfront and speed up that process? And, and later on, as these interfaces go down into the details of whether it's a signal or whether it's a CAN signal or a LIN signal or what kind of encoding, what kind of parameter it kind of can, you know, carries, when it gets triggered, all of those are the details. Obviously, that needs to be done, but the effect of those, all those things, can you assess that upfront, shifting towards the left of the V, uh, engineering V, if you will, to do those things upfront so that you can, you can basically expedite your, you know, feature feasibility, if you will, uh, studies. When you think about like this simple example, right, there's, when you turn a key on your car on, or you press that button to start your car, a cascade of signals starts going through your networks of your car and a signal will go from one ECU to the other. And there's a certain window of time where some logic is done in that destination ECU. It does calculate some things like it says it could be as basic as I'm awake and I, I have no issues, no faults. And it sends back a message to another ECU that says, OK, that ECU is working. It can, it can function properly. What about the next ECU? And if you don't get the timing correctly, it's like a clockwork that gets jammed. And there have been many situations where uh, customers of ours have literally had cars stop on the line. They couldn't key on a car. 
and one particular car, because, you know, all these cars are so unique, you know, every configuration of a car is unique. The car comes to the end of the line and somebody tries to start it and it won't start. And after weeks of troubleshooting, they realize, oh, we misconfigured a, a feature that was intended for North American market and another market of the world where they didn't have a sort of functional safety requirement in place. And so this other ECU that was expecting to receive a signal from another one ECU didn't get it. And then, of course, the thing, the car won't start. And that's the kind of real challenges that are tricky. I think you're talking to, Piyush, is that it's one thing to just say, I've got all the signals that I need. But it's another thing to get the sequencing, the clockwork of all these signals correct. The idea of being able to do that up front, not just verify afterwards, but to be able to design systems knowing that they will, they can be plugged in together and that clock works is really, a, I think, a leading edge of technology. And then being able to continuously check that throughout the entire development process to make sure that any other change later doesn't impact the overall function. Well, that's interesting, Nick. That, that's actually the contract that Tim was alluding to, right? The idea that you could design an interface and you could pl- apply a contract that these signals have to be, have certain characteristics and behaviors so that when you put them all together, if all the contracts are in agreement, the handshakes are there, it's like a business that can, you know, that can run, right? Yeah, and that's very important because it's not a, you know, typically in auto, it's not a one-time deal, right? It's these functions or these features, you know, continuously get modified, continuously get enhanced. So if if there was no contract between function A and function B that you will transmit a signal and I will be receiving it and the time that is needed to do the wait time, if you will, is let's say 300 milliseconds. And later on, two years down the line, if that function changed or added something in that function, and now instead of giving that signal in 300 milliseconds, it gets delayed. Let's say processing that is needed for function A is now 400 milliseconds. The function B is still expecting that signal at 300 milliseconds. So, so now there's a disconnect unless you have these kinds of contracts and the system basically highlights that these contracts are getting violated because function A is now you know, delaying the signal by 100 milliseconds. Right? Those kinds of things routinely happen and tools like we have, they, they kind of uh, put these contracts in place so that these things can be highlighted and, and arrested in time upfront so that um, the issues like these don't happen. And a truly severe business case issue, right? And that, that if you're a company that sells cars today and you want to be more dynamic, you want to really be more like a software company and agile, then over-the-air updates are a pathway to a lot of revenue. And how do you confidently update somebody's software? And if you do that, and break their car, what do you lose in the customer's confidence? You know, think about that. It's like you, with the one hand, you've got this huge carrot, which is this desire to sell a car that can be updated over time. There's revenue potential in upgrading your car, adding new features and functionality. It's a very exciting idea. Customers could buy a car just for that reason. But then later on, when they buy something from you, an upgrade, they can't start their car or strange things happen or it becomes unreliable, that could be really come back to bite you. So this idea that you have um, mechanisms in place, which is the original thing, what is feature engineering? Feature engineering is about breaking up that problem and then creating a set of contracts and and, um, uh, business mechanisms 
that you can do this kind of over-the-air updates, and you can do many other things as well. That's just one example. So coming back to the connected engineering, I mean, what you guys are talking about is that our traditional approaches of departmental views of domain disciplines no longer apply. You you can never design engineer what you're talking about in a traditional way. And I think what we're all reinforcing is models do matter and that we need that upstream definition from product definition that articulates the what and the why, because that tells me behaviorally from my requirements. It, it basically gives me the the input into the outcome we're trying to achieve. But then we go further because in order to connect the engineering teams together, we need architecture at the EE software level that starts defining how those things will be engineered. And that includes not just the function allocation, but also the interface that will be necessary in a digital world. And then you follow that with the need to continuously verify. I mean, it's just a continuous verification cycle to make sure that each team stays on point to, to that end result. And so this this whole path that we're on a connected engineering is just dramatically reinforcing that in these software-driven autonomous type of products, you must stay connected through a model-based approach. Otherwise, there is no way to verify that you're still on path. I, I agree with you, Tim. And it, that's why the industry is already making dramatic shifts to like virtual hardware in a loop and uh, these other ways of doing verification and integration much earlier in the process, right? and throughout all the different levels of fidelity of software, because as we all said, you know, software matures throughout the process time, right? And you add the complication that you may be adding third-party software that needs to be integrated in to your uh, vehicle platform. So it, there are so many different aspects of this that make it so complex. The tools need to be there and be linked and integrated to help the engineering team out. Like you said, the feature now is, is the centric piece of it, that drives the whole process. It breaks the silos down, right? So a feature engineer, an owner of a feature, will have all these domain engineers associated to him so he can make sure that he is not violating those cross-domain aspects and he can start to integrate and validate it much quicker into the vehicle. Well, even we've been talking about one feature, but in a current vehicle, how many features are really represented what we've been talking? It's hundreds, right? Oh, yeah. And, it, and that's also, I, we could go on about, you know, the, the explosion in the signals in a car today is just magnitudes greater. Not only the hundreds of, of features, Tim. I mean, you know, one is, you know, how many features do you have on a car? But if, if you think about uh, any given OEM, obviously they're not making just that car. They're making, you know, multiple vehicle programs, if you will, right? So from their perspective, from the OEM's perspective, it's not hundreds of uh, features, it's about thousands of features across their platforms. And when you add a, um, a feature or a modification to a feature, what you really have to ensure is, is that feature is going to work in the context of these other features as well. That's one thing. And the second is the, the high systemic organic reuse of functions that are needed for this new feature. How do you do that? You know, when you have thousands of features that you need to worry about, how do you make sure that you're not reinventing the wheel, you're, you're reusing the functions that are already available on your sort of feature architecture, if you will? Where Auto Park may be a good example of that, where today when you see the commercials, almost every vehicle has some type of Auto Park, but it's really, it's really combining a series of existing features that have been used for safety as well. Exactly. That whole reuse aspect, right, is it's a big, big thing because obviously they want to reduce 
engineering cost overall, right? So how do you not do new functions, but use existing functions and innovate new features using those existing functions? That's a big, big push. But unless you have some sort of a feature architecture, um, I mean, you can't, you just physically cannot possibly do that. As we know in the car companies, as you said, they like to use reuse, right? Because it reduces the cost. You may have multiple devices that could support a feature or a set of functions, right? So you can always go in now and look at which one is best suited. Which one do I have to modify the least to support and continue or increase volume of that device, right? So there's a lot of other ways you can look at this feature engineering is to minimize the actual component cost of the, of the vehicle. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's that's a good point, Brad. I mean, that's another big trend that is you know in the industry today where what I would typically call is as sort of hardware consolidation, where instead of having you know, 70 ECUs on a vehicle, they want to go down to four and call them like domain control units, where just basically you know, four different computers and that's it. So everything, all your 70 ECUs are now sort of consolidated into four. But now the problem is twofold. One is, are those four DCUs, if you will, hardware-wise, are they capable of doing the same or more features? That's one aspect of it. And the second is all that complexity that you had on the hardware, now you all of that complexity, you just shift it to software. So now software has to do everything that these other 70 issues were doing and be able to sort of map to these four domain control units. So that that's another you know big problem or big uh, challenge that OEMs are having. How do you go from there, you know, from point A to point B, from a 70 ECU to a 4 ECU? And then we add a supply chain that is a very important part of each of these product companies as well, where the supply chain needs to also not just deliver back the physical parts of it, but they also have software deliveries also. Yeah, that's a very good point because many tier one suppliers now are receiving RFIs just for these zone modules or zone controllers. And they, they've come to us saying that the biggest thing they want to do is how can they architect their product, if you want to say, that could support many OEMs, not just one. So they may overbuild their uh, component that's going to go into the vehicle so it can support many and they can increase volumes on it. So they're, they're looking at it just from almost the opposite way coming in and they got the same problems of they need to architect their solution to target many OEMs, not, not just one the way it used to be in the old days. Going down to sort of the you know, system on chip kind of thing where before you are sort of designing your system on chip or the hardware itself, you need to validate, let's say, the vehicle level features that are going to be implemented on that chip before you fabricate it. Because once you start fabricating it, you know, you, you, there's a lot of problems that we're seeing right now with this chip shortage and all that. But what, what the auto industry is trying to do is be able to have uh, capabilities around designing these features, but pre-validating them on how those chips are going to be before the chips gets designed and and and, uh, and fabricated so that they know the entire supply chain of how that feature is going to be implemented down to the transistors that are going to be on that chip. Or even understanding that the engineering work that goes into those chips is worthwhile in the first place, that your idea is going to work. Yeah, validating vehicle-level scenarios on a chip that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right. So unless you have this sort of what a world uh, we live in. Well, there's a need for this, right? And and the need yeah. is uh, lower cost, lower power. So if you pull yeah. out your your smartphone, 
there's a lot of custom silicon on that smartphone that allows it to be have those 15-hour lifespans, right, on the one battery charge to do very specific tasks, you know, and, and, and that's where this is, it's actually funny. You know, I said electrical or electronic architecture, I said software architecture, but in the reality, it's blurry because now we have, we don't make a decision, is it software? Is it electronic? We can actually go a little bit in the middle, like with these FPGAs and programmable units where we can say some parts of the functionality, they're going to be programmable hardware. And, you know, it gets even, it is even more interesting, more complex, but and that's, a, that's a whole topic for a whole day. In fact, that's going to be our next episode. It's, it's going to be a good one to listen to if you're interested in systems to silicon. And I think key thing, I think Michael touched upon briefly was safety and uh, obviously some portion of security, obviously, right? What we're trying to do is break that safety down to these, you know, hardware levels or the, or the dungeons of, of the implementations, if you will, so that nobody can get to it from a security standpoint, nobody be able to hack it down, if you will, right? Bringing down that, you know, redundancies at, at that hardware level, build that security and safety so that when you're implementing applications, you're basically just executing a certain level of logic. But from a safety and execution perspective, it is going down to the hardware level and, and nobody can touch that part of it. Okay, guys, thank you so much. We've gone through so much information in this episode. Any, any last thoughts before we sign off? Well, let's spend another five hours talking about this. I think clearly we could talk about this all day. So I'm sure our listeners will love that. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Thanks a lot, Nick, for giving us the opportunity of recording this. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Yeah. yeah, thanks for joining. Thank you for joining us in this third podcast of our series on model-based systems engineering. As always, we look forward to future discussions on innovative technologies that impact the future of manufacturing.